This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Just a quick announcement. We're in the midst of a very important fundraising drive to come up with all of our production costs for 2016. So if you like Kick-Ass Politics and you value what I'm doing here, then I hope you'll go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics and donate what you can. It's vital that we fund our production budget for the coming year so I can focus my energies on the content side of kick-ass politics, which is probably a lot more involved than you might think. So be a part of what I'm creating here. Just go to gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or hit the donate button on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. If you go there now and donate something, anything, doesn't matter what amount, I promise I'll keep doing what I'm doing here and producing new shows for you every week. Thanks in advance, folks. And now, enjoy the show. The big day is finally here, folks. The Iowa caucuses, when the very first votes get cast in the 2016 presidential election. The kickoff to a marathon race that won't let up until Tuesday, November 8th when one man or one woman is left standing and America has chosen a new commander-in-chief. But what exactly is a caucus? And why does Iowa get to do it first? Who's in charge? How big a factor is the weather on caucus day? Can you win Iowa without loving ethanol? And what the heck is a full grassley? We'll find out today when I talk to real Iowans including some of the most important political leaders in that state, because it's Caucus Monday on Kick-Ass Politics, coming up in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Since 1972, the Iowa caucuses have been the first major electoral event of the presidential nominating process. But it was 1976 when a humble peanut farmer from Georgia named Jimmy Carter pulled off a surprise victory and put the Iowa caucuses on the map. Since then, Iowa's been known as the place where a candidate without a national profile or a huge war chest can still play with the big boys and break into the top tier if he's willing to lay the necessary groundwork, spend a lot of time in state, and campaign his little tail off. Unlike primaries, which are overseen by the State Election Commission, the Iowa caucuses are actually administered by the state parties. So first, I decided to talk with Dr. Cody Hofert, co-chairman of the Iowa Republican Party, about how the whole caucus system works. Cody, people always ask me, what's the difference between a caucus and a primary? And I guess I would describe an, an Iowa caucus as something of a cross between a town hall meeting and a church social. Um, 
So you're the co-chair of the Iowa GOP, and y'all are the ones running the show over there. Explain how exactly the Republican caucuses work in Iowa. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a distinct difference between uh, a primary and a caucus, <clears throat> in that a caucus is really a, a party-building apparatus ran by the state party uh, with the assistance of the county parties and volunteers. And so how, how it will work here in Iowa on Monday night is at 7 o'clock, everybody will be at their local uh, precinct uh, meeting site. Uh, quite often those are community centers, schools, you know, local buildings like that, and they will be there at 7 o'clock, and they will uh, elect a precinct chairman. Uh, they will elect members to their county central committees. They will elect delegates to their county convention, because this is really also our delegate selection process for moving forward from district to state to national as well. Um, and then they will also elect um, or place... Uh, platform planks into into, uh, into the party platform or what they want their county party to stand for. Um, and then they will also uh, place a vote for who they want the next president of the United States to be. And our, our process is different from the Democrats here in Iowa when it comes to the presidential politics as well, and that ours is a straight one-for-one one vote that night. And so what will happen is uh, the community members and your friends and people you work with and go to church with and see in your community will be in, in the room and and people will be able to stand up and make their pitch for their particular candidate on why he or she should be the next president and try to convince their friends and neighbors to also vote for them. Uh, once that process is done and the speeches have been made, then ballots will be passed out and you'll be able to cast your ballot for who you want the Republican nominee to be. Then that process, then the votes will be tabulated and reported back to the state party. and The state party will then uh, report them uh, to the national media. What's the atmosphere like at a caucus? Is it pretty civilized, or does it sometimes get kind of rowdy? Uh, it's traditionally very, it's traditionally very, very civilized. I mean, you you've heard the term Iowa nice. I mean, it, it traditionally is is very civilized. But you know, one important thing to remember is Iowans have been doing this for years, and they they understand the process. They take great pride in their ability to be able to do this and to do it well and effectively. Uh, and so uh, it's typically a very respectful process. Uh, we understand that, you know, there may be a candidate's uh, supporter who stands up that you disagree with vehemently, but then it's your job to stand up and make the case for your candidate uh, as well. And so you get the opportunity to do that. Very rarely uh, do they do they get uh, uncivil, so to speak. Uh, they're, they're usually very well organized and traditionally well run. So it's never awkward the next day when you run into your neighbors? Oh, no. Heck no. Because here in Iowa, I mean, people talk politics 365 days a year. <laughs> I mean, that's just part, part of the process and part of who we, who, who we are as a state. And, and to be honest, um, that's one of the things that makes Iowa great is people here take their politics seriously. Um, they research and vet the candidates. Um, they know who they're going to support and why and can traditionally articulate it. Um, they've asked them tough questions, visited with them. And so it's not uncommon uh, for people to know who everybody is supporting in their community or in their church because people people here talk politics all the time. <laughs> you know, in a lot of primaries, um, participants don't necessarily have to be registered with the party that they're going to vote in. But participants in each party's caucus in Iowa have to be registered with the party. 
do you think that that keeps the process a little purer? Here in Iowa, I like the fact that you must be a registered Republican to participate in our caucus because uh, it reduces the likelihood of there being any any funny games played by the opposite political party trying to uh, give momentum to a candidate of their choice instead of our choice. And so it really ends up being that then the, then, then the Republicans and registered Republicans will determine the Republican nominee and the Democrats and, Republic, and registered Democrats will determine their nominee. And for us, that's been the way it's been. That's, that's worked well for us, and we like it that way. In spite of those fail-safes and those protections, last time around in 2012, you had a little bit of a problem because the process got sort of overrun by Ron Paul's supporters, who were then disproportionately represented at the Republican National Convention. What exactly happened in 2012, and what have you guys done at the state party to fix some of the kinks in the system so that doesn't happen again? Well, in terms of one of the things that's really different in 16 compared to 12 is our delegates will be bound and will reflect the results of the caucus. And so I think that's a distinct difference. So our national delegates on the first ballot are bound to reflect the results of the caucus. And so you will not have uh, that opportunity for that to happen. Another thing that we've done in 16 compared to 12 is we have put in uh, partnered with Microsoft uh, to put in a reporting app uh, which has multiple built-in safeguards uh, to ensure that we're reporting our results accurately um, and in 2012 it, the certification process took a couple weeks um, that's not uncommon in an election to certify it afterwards and for it to take a period of time uh, but we've hired staff and really bulked up in our staff and we've bulked up in our activists and the number of trainings that we've done um, and that we're going to have our caucus results certified in 48 hours. And so we're really going to be able to say who the winner is, even if it's a seven-vote margin on caucus night, we're going to be able to say with confidence who the winner is within 48 hours of the caucus. And another big change this time around is that there was this tradition of the Ames Straw Poll, which was held the year before the election in August. But in June 2015, the party decided to do away with the Ames Straw Poll. Why is that? The straw poll was always meant to be a candidate event and a party event uh, to, for our grassroots activists to have an opportunity to meet and hear from our candidates uh, and for the party to have an opportunity to, to put on an event uh, where we get all the candidates together in one place so people can compare and contrast. At some point, it, it gets down to the fact of where um, is it really valid to have that straw poll if no candidates want to participate. And so we made the choice due to the uh, limited interest and participation uh, to withdraw the straw poll for, for this cycle. Um, and I think uh, candidates have responded to that. They've spent a lot more time in, in Iowa. We've had over 1,000 candidate visits in the last year um, all over our state, from big cities to small towns. So we're really, uh, candidates have invested time, effort, and energy here in Iowa, and uh, we've rolled out the welcome mat to welcome them. The Democrats have had a pretty good record over the years. Um, on the Republican side, you've had 11 caucuses. Now, if you take out the incumbents running for re-election, the Iowans have gotten it right three out of the eight times that they didn't have an incumbent running. What do you say when people say the record for the Iowa GOP caucuses are a little spotty? We've never viewed our job in Iowa as being a state that has to absolutely pick the president or the nominee. And one of the things that I would just remind you is this time when the when the Iowa process started, we had 17 candidates running for president. 
uh, we've always viewed our job as winnowing the field, looking at the candidates, asking the questions, putting four, three, four, five people forward into New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada um, that, that those folks can have a chance to take a look at. You know, if you're the last state to vote, it's traditionally pretty easy to get it right. <laughs> you know, and when you're the first state to vote, it's a little more difficult to get it right. Now, I will say winners of the Iowa caucuses, I mean, although they may or may not have went on to win the White House, when you look at um, George W. Bush has won the Iowa caucuses, right. uh, George H.W. Bush has won the Iowa caucuses, Gerald Ford has won the Iowa caucuses, Bob Dole has won the Iowa caucuses, and essentially Governor Romney tied last time. That's true. He had 25% and Santorum had 25%, right? Yeah, they were within seven votes on caucus night. And once it was once the results were certified, it ended up being, I believe, 34 votes. It was essentially a, a tie. And, I, you know, I'm always, I always, uh, when, I, when I get asked this question, I always reflect uh, back on something that President Reagan said in 1980 after he was elected. He said he would always be grateful to the people of Iowa for giving him the kick in the pants he needed. <laughs> Right. And so I think there's some truth to that. Right. He, he found out maybe where his shortcomings were uh, and where his, some of his failures may have been uh, by campaigning all across Iowa. Uh, and it gave him the opportunity to become a better candidate. And thus, we, we, we feel a better president. Interesting. And so we're proud of our record and the work that we've done. Yeah. Interesting. So you view the role as you weed out some of the weaker candidates and maybe embolden some of the stronger candidates for the election ahead. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, Senator Rick Santorum. He won the Iowa caucuses last time around in 2012, and you worked on his campaign. So before we go, from an insider's perspective, what was the process of campaigning in the Iowa caucuses like? I had the opportunity to travel to some other states uh, with the senator in 2012, and it becomes a media blitz. It becomes uh, large press conferences, and it becomes TV ads and radio. But I think one of the things that's important is having the ability for people to actually shake your hand and ask you a question, look you in the eye, find out if you're authentic, find out if you're real. Um, and, and nowhere else in the world uh, is that allowed to happen like it does in Iowa and New Hampshire to a degree, but Iowa for sure. Um, and so it allows anybody to come to Iowa and run for president. I mean, Senator Santorum four years ago is a perfect example of somebody who didn't have a tremendous amount of money, uh, came to Iowa, invested the resources uh, in terms of time, uh, and built relationships. And that was reflective on how the caucuses turned out in 2012. So uh, we, we take the process serious. We're proud of the work our activists do. Uh, and we're, uh, we're just really excited for Monday night because we, we are as prepared as we've ever been to run a successful caucus. And all eyes, all eyes will be on Iowa as it, as it should be caucus night because we do not take it for granted. Uh, we understand that it's a privilege um, that's granted to us by the people of America to be first, and, and we take that privilege seriously. Well, you're certainly right. All eyes are going to be on Iowa Monday night. And Mr. Co-Chairman, if it doesn't go off perfectly, you know whose door they're going to be knocking on come Tuesday morning. (laughs) I expect I might be back on your program. (laughs) One very big influencer in Iowa politics is Des Moines radio host Steve Dace. His show has become a must-visit for any candidate with presidential aspirations. And Steve himself has been credited with almost single-handedly delivering a caucus victory for Mike Huckabee in 2008. Here's his take on the caucuses. 
So first tell me this, uh, how many caucuses have you been to since you first came of voting age? Oh, let me do the math here. Uh, 96, <laughs> 2002, 2004, 3, 8, 4, 5. This will be my sixth. You know, I, whenever I look at the Iowa caucuses and all the news coverage, I think to myself, sheesh, you know, Iowa voters, they have lives too. You know, they work, <laughs> they have families, they got to get the kids to school. So what in the world is it like when every four years, a dozen or more hotshot carpetbaggers <laughs> invade your state and their campaign buses, and you probably can't go down to the local diner and even get breakfast without getting glad-handed by some politician that dominates every conversation? Does that ever wear thin, Steve? You know, there's a point, and um, I, I used to do sports talk radio, and uh, you would talk to athletes, and when it got to the end of the season, uh, or when the season was over, they were like, oh, man, I, I'm glad it's over. It's a grind. I, my body needed a break. <laughs> and then, like, a few weeks later, they were kind of, like, antsy for it to start again, you know? And so yeah. we're at that point in the Iowa caucuses where people want it over with. But, you know, <laughs> in a few months, they're going to be, like, uh, speculating what's going to happen the next time already. Or, or five <laughs> minutes after uh, this election is over in November, and whoever loses will be back here again. And so the speculation for the caucuses will begin all over again. So, Steve, how do Iowa voters pick a candidate? What's that decision process like? About a third or so of Iowa voters will make up their minds at the very end. Plus, you need to understand the way, then, that most people in Iowa do make up their minds. Most people in Iowa that wait till the end to make up their minds go to the caucus site with a couple of choices they're willing to vote for. And then they'll listen to speeches uh, from advocates of that candidate They'll, they'll, they'll have their friends, you know, um, lobby them, horse trade with them. And so, you know, you'll get a group of people. Let's say you get 50 people from a church uh, that will go to a caucus or the caucus is at a church. And, you know, most of the people there um, are just now paying attention, but there's a few key activists in the room. And let's say one of them, one of the precinct captains there, we have a small state, but there's 99 counties and over 1,600 precincts where people are going to vote. And those precincts are churches, gymnasiums, um, courtrooms, uh, you know, homes. And so let's say there's 50 people gathered at a, at a church getting ready to caucus, and they don't really know where their pastor stands because he's not going to necessarily say so, so from the pulpit because of the IRS. But what they don't know is that he's a precinct captain for one of the candidates. And so everybody goes around the room, starts listening to speeches, and the pastor gets up and says, I'm voting for so-and-so, and here's why. And a bunch of people look at each other and say, well, you know, that guy was on my list. He was one of my choices I was looking at. And, you know, I really trust and respect the wisdom uh, and, and guidance of, of my pastor. And this is true if you've got the key business leader in the community or, you know, someone that's strong and with an influential, you know, nonprofit group or sports team. And, and that absolutely sways people. And it's why you see wide swings. Plus, there's what we call strategic voting in Iowa, Ben. And this is where huh. people walk in and they say, you know, I want my vote to count. So, you know, if you look at four years ago, you really saw this help Rick Santorum, for example. I mean, people walked right. in and said, you know, M Michelle Bachman's not going to win. So why do I care if she gets 5% or 11? New Gingrich isn't going to win. So why do I care if he gets 18% or, or 10? He's not going to win. I'm going to vote for the guy that I think is the closest to my value system that seems to have that momentum. I want my vote to count. 
which is another reason why polling of the Iowa caucuses is notoriously bad. And I could give your audience plenty of documented examples if you're interested. We've had Iowa caucuses where Pat Buchanan was polling at 4% and ended up with 23% on caucus night. Let me give you some, some other examples. Uh, in 2004, the highest John Kerry was polling in any final public poll of the Democrat caucuses was 23%. On caucus night, he got 37%. In 2008, we had eight public polls the last week of the campaign in Iowa that had Hillary Clinton winning. Hillary finished third and Barack Obama won. He outperformed the real clear politics polling average by seven points. And then I mentioned what happened four years ago with Rick Santorum, where there were, there were only two polls in the last week that had him above 18 percent. Most of them had him at 14 to 16 percent. He outperformed the real clear politics polling average by 10 points that night to win. And so there's, there's two reasons for this. One of them I've already given you, which is the kind of horse trading that goes on in strategic voting. Here's the other reason why it's very difficult for polls to, to resonate in Iowa. Because the most formidable organization in the caucus process are the evangelical churches, that, that network that I'm tied into. And so when you, when you have evangelicals make up upwards of 60% of the electorate in Iowa, and they don't typically respond well to polls, uh, you know, that also gives you an idea that, you know, maybe these numbers necessarily aren't the most accurate. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish my point, Ben, before we get to your next question. I'll throw this in. We've had three contested Republican Iowa caucuses this century, 2008 and 2012. The mm -hmm. same candidate won all three races, and that's the candidate who got the most votes in the evangelical community. Well, yeah, because uh, you had Rick Santorum the last time around in 2012, and then prior to that, you had Mike Huckabee, who Fox News credited you with uh, winning him that caucus with your endorsement. I, don't, I believe talk show hosts cannot win elections. Candidates have to win elections. Now, did I provide Mike Huckabee an opportunity to compete with um, a media platform that he didn't have the money to compete with Mitt Romney on head-to-head? -head? Sure. I mean, there's no question that Huckabee, I guess I would put it this way, he would not have won without me. But I'm not the reason he won at the same time, Ben. I mean, I, I gave him a chance to make the sale. He still had to take advantage of it. I mean, if, if I had given him that opportunity and he was a schmuck, I mean, I can't force people to go against what their own eyes can see and their ears right. can hear. What is it that they look for in a candidate? I mean, there's some issue non-negotiables. Uh, when you're dealing with a, a state where 60% of the turnout is evangelicals, and even our, you know, about 15% of our voters here in Iowa are libertarians, but they're not sort of what I like to kind of kid around and call the Ron Paul free the weeders. They're more of the <laughs> classical liberal types like a Thomas Jefferson, you know, okay. and so, so they care more about moral issues too. So a candidate who is not strongly pro-life is going to struggle here if he can't credibly make the case that he is. But, it, but on, a, on more of a, you know, in a, on a, I guess an existential level, people like to vote for people they trust and they like. And that's why the retail campaigning, Ben, is, matters so much is because this is where people get to know you. At the end of the campaign, if people in Iowa do not think that they can call you by your first name, they typically won't vote for you. Apparently, this is very important. Iowans really <laughs> like for their candidates to spend a lot of time in state. They want to shake your hand and meet you and, and bet you personally. So there is this term, the full Grassley, named after your senior senator, Chuck Grassley. What is the full Grassley, Steve? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have 99 counties, and so the full Grassley is, uh, have you visited all of them? Meaning, and it's sort of symbolic of, I mean, listen, Charles Grassley names the score 
in, you know, um, it's like Alabama with coached by Nick Saban playing Vanderbilt on a Saturday. He names the score every election. Is he getting 58%, 68%? He names the score. Really? Uh, and, and, and the reason being is because he still comes back home and works the ground. You know, we used to say the only difference when him and Harkin were in the Senate together, the only other, other than the fact one's a Republican and one's a Democrat, the other big difference between Tom Harkin and Charles Grassley is one still lives in Iowa and the other doesn't, yeah. right? I mean, Tom Harkin sort of had a mailbox in Indianola that was called his home. He was never here except the campaign. Uh, Grassley still lives here, uh, and he puts in the work. He's built a lot of relationships with people. Um, he is the one other candidate that if he wanted to put an organization together early for a presidential candidate, it would be impactful. You know, he's more of an esprit de corps guy, so he's just never done it. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, that's what it means to do the full Grassley. It's sort of symbolic of the fact that you're not trying to buy Iowans votes. You're not just doing splashy rallies where you do this for photo ops, but you're willing mm -hmm. to let people get to know you, see you up close and personal. And here's a really important thing about Iowa that doesn't get reported a lot then. Since yeah. 1992, we have not elected a president who did not win a contested Iowa caucus since 1992. And that year, huh. Harkin ran for president, so the Democrats didn't have a very competitive caucus because he was a favorite son. On the other hand, although everybody loves New Hampshire, and I get it, I'm in the media, and it's exciting, anybody can vote, kid and play house party, pajama party, green party can come in, vote for anybody you want, whenever they want, and so you don't know what the results are, it's fun, I get that, but since 1988, New Hampshire has not selected a president of the United States, and here's why. Really? Because, yeah, that's true. There's not they like to brag about that. They like to say Iowans pick corn I, and New Hampshireites pick uh, presidents, don't it's they? It's the exact opposite. Songus, oh. McCain, Hillary, Buchanan. Ooh, these yikes. are all people that won, Iowa, that won New Hampshire primaries in years they did not win the presidency. And I think this is my hypothesis as to why. Because anybody can vote at any time for any reason in New Hampshire. You get exciting yeah. results, but it doesn't necessarily show you who has built a base that can last. On the other hand, in Iowa, you have to start with – to win Iowa, you have to build the very first block of a successful campaign. You have to energize a grassroots base that will be your loyal foundation that you can grow from there. And if you go back to the Reagan Revolution in 1980, what you're going to find, Ben, is every presidential election was won by the candidate who more energized their base. Now, I'm not saying you can win with just your base. I'm saying, however, as Mitt Romney found out in 2012, you cannot win without it either. And you're, because your base, and you and I are in business, we like to grow audiences, we call them in our line of work P1s, right? You have <laughs> to have your P1s because they're the ones that are going to help you grow to P2s and P3s. And if you don't develop those P1s on the ground among the activists in Iowa, that's a pretty good test model that you can't do it nationally. And so people say, well, you know, that's fine, but Iowa didn't take the last two GOP nominees. Well, that's true, but what Iowa then told you, because you can turn it around on you and say, what Iowa told you is the GOP nominated two candidates that were weak with their own base, and that's why yeah. they lost. Well, we're going to take a quick break right now, and then I'll be back to talk more with Steve Dace. And then I'll talk with Congressman Steve King about the ethanol lobby and the candidate they're spending millions to try and defeat. We'll be back in just a moment. Folks, do you like to read but you don't have the time? Give audiobooks a try. All those times you spend listening to this podcast, you can also be listening to a great book. 
You can play it on your drive to work, on a run, in the bathtub, while cooking, or just sitting and enjoying one of those rare stolen moments. And right now, you can download any audiobook you want for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free download of any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with radio host Steve Dace. Explain this to me. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, Iowans seem like they probably have a pretty good BS detector on them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have this guy who, you know, does a completely impersonal campaign, big rallies, doesn't do the whole 99 counties. He's this slick New Yorker who kind of seems to treat everyone like they're a bunch of rubes, if you ask me. Yeah. So how is Donald Trump doing so well in the Iowa polls? You know, I've, I have done an, I've done umpteen interviews on this um, in television and radio this week. And, and so I've taken a look at these various polls that have come out in the last week and a half that have shown all of a sudden Donald Trump getting higher numbers in Iowa than he's ever received. And there's a common, there's a common theme here. CNN is projecting in the poll that it had on Friday that had Trump up by 11 points, it's projecting 300,000 Iowans are going to vote. And the poll Fox came out with over the weekend, they're projecting about 250,000 Iowans are going to vote. Here's the problem with that. We've never had an Iowa caucus where more than 125,000 people voted ever. And I know people are going to say, well, you've ne- you know, you're going to have all these new voters. And I've heard this a million times. This go around, we have 62 counties in Iowa that have at least 3,000 registered Republicans. Then only three of them right now have more registered Republicans in them than they did a year ago. That's 4%, Ben, only 4%. And two of those three counties, which includes Lynn County, one of the largest counties in Iowa, two of those three counties have only grown by a combined 327 Republican registrations combined. What we're going to find out on Monday night is if the fundamentals of campaigns have changed, because Trump has not done any of the retail campaigning. He has not built any sort of an organization that it typically takes to win Iowa. He has thrived in the environment that has changed, and that's why he's gotten away with mocking people with disabilities and other things that no one else would have gotten away with. But, but we're going to find out, though, even if the environment has changed, has the fundamentals changed? Do you still – do you no longer have to do – you know, it's a little bit like, you know, we've seen run-and-shoot offenses and spread offenses in college football, but who is still kicking everybody's rear end and – Alabama lining up in the I formation, blocking and tackling, and hitting you harder than you hit them. The Mm -hmm. fundamentals of the game doesn't change. So we're going to find out Monday night if the fundamentals of campaigns have changed. Can you win by essentially mocking your own voters, like saying, you know, I could shoot you or shoot somebody and you'd still vote for me? Not building an organization, not doing a personable touch, but running like it's a reality TV show. Can you win that way? And we're going to find out on Monday night, because if the fundamentals of, the, of, of, of campaigning haven't changed, Trump is not going to win. Who would you say, among the politicians, who would you say is the biggest get as far as a political endorsement for a candidate? I think there are only three endorsements that matter, two for conservatives and one for more moderate, or if you want to call them establishment candidates. 
And it's for the same reason. There's really only three people that if they endorse you in Iowa can get you and or can help you organizationally put boots in the ground, meaning they give you something other than a one-time rally like Sarah Palin gave Donald Trump or something other than one day of headlines and, and buzz for your campaign, but something that lasts that will pay dividends when people get gather on caucus night. For conservatives, it's Congressman Steve King and it's conservative activist Bob Vanderplotz, whose organization, the family leader, is sort of the linchpin of the evangelical church network in Iowa. Uh, for more establishment or moderate candidates, it's Governor Terry Branstad, because he has an organization capable of working the ground for you in Iowa. And what's been interesting in this process, Ben, is um, you know the only candidate that's ever gotten Ted that's ever gotten both Steve King and Bob Vanderplotz to work together in a caucus campaign is Ted Cruz. So he's merged. And you, and, by the and, way, and, your, and, and your endorsement and full true. disclosure here, that's you endorse true. Ted Cruz too. I'm just, so. I, don't, I just don't know how influential it is, but, um, you know, putting the organizations of King and Vanderplotz together along with what he's built, Cruz has the most formidable organization in Iowa anybody's ever seen. I talked with Congressman Steve King about his endorsement of Senator Ted Cruz and the multi-million dollar attack campaign that Big Ethanol has been waging against his candidate. Congressman King, you represent the 4th Congressional District in Iowa. You and Governor Terry Branstad are probably the two biggest as far as uh, Iowa endorsements for a candidate. What are, what's your criteria and what's your process like? What do you want to hear from a candidate? Well, I, I've gotten to know each of the 17 candidates prior to them coming into this race in most cases, and either personally and professionally in most, most cases. I look at where they stand on all the issues that I just stand up and tell people I'm a full-spectrum, constitutional, Christian conservative, and I want, a, I want a president who reflects those values. I look and see where they've been on the issues of life, on marriage, on the Constitution, on the Second Amendment, where, what drives them and where their energy comes from. And when, uh, when you see that, you can start to sort through a little bit. There are good candidates all the way up and down the line. I like and respect them all. Um, but in the end, it comes down to who will stand in that fight, uh, who who runs to the sound of the guns when it's time to do that? And so, and I've been in this arena long enough and fought enough lonely battles when I decided there was a matter of principle and no allies. That when somebody shows up and stands next to me, I'm pretty well convinced they're a true believer. Well, you've endorsed uh, Senator Ted Cruz, and it's interesting because you've been. This has been a bit of a dust up going on between you and Governor Branstad over the past week. You're a big champion of ethanol, as is he, and you've endorsed Senator Ted Cruz, who is against biofuel subsidies. Um, have you gotten much blowback from that? Well, there's been uh, plenty of blowback. It was uh, designed to come pouring in in uh, late November. They raised a lot of money all throughout all summer. The ethanol industry was getting petitions signed at the county fairs, and they raised a lot of money from several different entities and renewable fuels. And they had, I believe they had their ads already squared away, ready to go. They didn't seem to listen at all to Ted Cruz's position. They just decided to attack him. And the governor's son came out in mid-November or late November, and he they held a press conference, and they put out this kind of misinformation. They accused Ted Cruz of being a liar, a hypocrite, of wanting to hurt Iowa farmers in order to line his own pockets, and that he's heavily influenced by big oil. That's been their position for all along. And, of course, none of that is true. I've said publicly, I've never met anybody that evil. And I've been around here a while, and I've met a lot of people. 
first, I never met anybody that wanted to hurt farmers anywhere, let alone Iowa farmers, especially if they're running for, for president here in Iowa. And the second thing is that the, the, you know, Ted Cruz has been exactly clear on where he stands, and there's been no indication of any kind of a flip-flop. He wants to see renewable fuels be able to compete in the marketplace. He would eliminate the subsidies for petroleum and end the mandate, phase down the mandate for ethanol. That's a free market position that gets applause all over this state. And so what you know, what has happened is they raised the money, they committed themselves to attacking Ted Cruz, and now it's about these, the, the PACs and the governor's son's reputation on how badly they can hurt a candidate, the more badly they might be able to hurt Ted Cruz, the, the next job they get will pay better. That's what's going on here in this state, and the governor and I completely disagree on this. However, we had a conversation on the phone last Friday, and a number of I brought up a number of the things that his son Eric had been doing and saying, and uh, in the end, uh, his answer to those things that I've just quoted to you it was, well, I don't agree with that. So um, we're going to find out who's got the influence here in this state. And I just hope it comes back to truth, justice, and the American way, the Superman model. You're a Republican. And what do you say to those who say, while it's good for Iowa in terms of general limited government con- conservative principles, giving government subsidies to encourage you know, what they would claim, say is burning our food— and some would claim is uh, a fuel that uh, is inefficient and possibly in some total might be worse for the environment uh, than oil. What do you say to those people who say, well, the, you know, the, the ethanol subsidies issue is not conservative? Well, first I would remind people that there is no subsidy for corn ethanol, and there hasn't been one since December 31st of 2011. Oh. What we do have is... Yes, that's that's gone. That was uh, that was put there in order to build an industry so that we were not dependent on foreign oil, and uh, we built that industry at the encouragement of Congress. Now there is no refuels, renewable fuel standard that requires that there be 14 and a half billion gallons of, of corn ethanol blended into the gas into the marketplace. That's the piece that Ted Cruz wants to phase down over five years, and that piece expires in 2022 anyway. Uh, so that's the only policy piece that has uh, has Ted Cruz in disagreement with the with the industry here. But what they're not seeing is that he would also direct the EPA to eliminate the 10% blood wall so that ethanol could be sold in the marketplace where there where that sweet spot is. There's a sweet spot we believe around E25 or E30 that brings about maximum mileage, maximum octane, and minimizes uh, substantially tailpipe emissions. Here's what I can say. There have been a, a number of studies that have been funded by the petroleum industry and influenced by them. There's some science out there that I just completely reject. But here's what we know. When you add ethanol to gasoline, you invariably increase the octane and you invariably diminish the toxic tailpipe emissions. Well, they're not testing ethanol in the gas in a fashion that, that, is, that reflects the, the product that it comes out. We just need to let that happen and let the marketplace decide. And the industry should be willing, and I'm asking them to be willing, to embrace the opportunity to compete with petroleum. But if you if you end the renewable fuel standard, what you produce then, well, you, you produce a 100% petroleum mandate, so the consumers won't have a choice. They'll have to buy petroleum if you if you end the RFS without opening up the marketplace for competition. Traditionally, any candidate who was against biofuels was dead in the water in Iowa. Do you think that's changing? 
I, I don't know. Uh, I think we'll have an indication on Monday night. But, you know, I, I would reiterate that Ted Cruz is not against the biofuels or renewable fuels. He's for allowing them to compete with every other form of energy. And I know that in an op-ed that he was writing, um, I had I had looked at the language that was on another. There were several documents out there. He was polishing one up. And I said, you left out coal and nuclear as far as fuel options. And he said, no, I put that in. And he showed me that he had already penciled it in and, and his edits in the op-ed. So uh, he wants all energy to compete against all other energy. And if we're not satisfied with that as Americans, then, then I, I think that's a sad day, especially among Republicans. So I, I think he's, he's, he's for allowing them to compete. He wants to open up the regulations so that they can compete, but he doesn't want to pick winners and losers. I agree with that philosophy, certainly. It's funny because I, I think outside of Iowa, the rest of us in the media tend to portray Iowa voters almost as single-issue voters. But in some total, when you look at a voter's decision in Iowa, really what percentage uh, of that has to do with biofuels as opposed to all the other issues on the table? I would guess that it's down there and probably down at about number five on the list of things that matter. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm judging from a poll that I happen to have seen here in the last day or so. And then also uh, from the, the reaction that I don't know how many public um, events I've done with Ted Cruz and the towns around the state, but it's probably in the area of three or four dozen. And he wants to get the have he wants them to ask that ethanol question. He's trying to pick when people raise their hands. He's trying to pick somebody with a seat corn cap on to ask the ethanol question. But even then, only about one out of three stops does the question get asked. And so I think that it's not as high a priority as people think. And uh, but and, and it shouldn't be when when the governor essentially says there's only one issue that you should vote on and nothing else. And if you don't follow the governor's prescription for what needs to be here for policy for renewable fuels, then nothing else matters. And that's, well, wait a minute, we have we have global and national security at stake. We have a huge national debt at stake. We have the issues of of life and marriage and appointments to the Supreme Court. Um, all of that, the full 100% repeal of Obamacare. But I don't want to say publicly that if I could if I could get all of those things and had to sacrifice the entire ethanol industry for it, who wouldn't say that would be a fair trade? But we don't have to make that trade. Sure. We, we can have all we can have our cake and eat it too, man. <laughs> well, there have been attempts by other states uh, over the years to bump uh, their primary seasons up and try and steal a little bit of Iowa's thunder. So make the case before we go for why Iowa deserves to be the first. Well, and I've, and I've spoken to people about this recently. You'll see on Monday night, you will see three generations walk into the caucus. The grandparents, the parents, and their children that will be, you know, of age, 18 and on up. Um, but we've been, we've been training people here in this state for a long time. That's why I see three generations coming in. And then there'll be young people that will come in to observe that are waiting for their chance to go to caucus in four years. We are in the state where all politics all the time. And if we don't have a small state that is face-to-face, shoe-leather retail politics, then the next president of the United States would be selected by whoever had the deepest pockets, whoever could write the biggest checks, whoever could have the media persona created by the advertising company. We wouldn't get to know our presidential candidates again. And just to give an example, eight years ago, I was trying to convince a lady that she should vote for my candidate. And she looked at me with the straightest of face, and she said, goodness, 
I wouldn't vote for someone for president whom I'd not yet met. And <laughs> that's how personal this gets. And so uh, and you want to know, you want to know not only the positions and policies of these candidates, anybody can put together a, a poll-tested position, especially these days. But we have people here that are so astute in their observation. They're watching how the candidate is in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, how they interact with people, with constituents, with kids, how they manage their time. How they interact with their staff is a really strong indicator of what kind of a president they're going to be. And don't we want people that have, I'll say, polished those skills that are down-home people with heart-of-the-heartland, core American values, making that first recommendation to the rest of the country? I think it's good for America to have that. I think it would be a calamity if it ever changed. Well, I'm talking to you on Thursday. We have four days until the caucuses, so I know that you are probably a very busy man today. So uh, before I let you go, what do you do the day after the caucuses? Do you, are you depressed? Do you, do you crash for 48 hours and just go to sleep, watch a football game, try and block politics out of your brain? What's your tradition? Well, I, I don't know if I can say what the tradition is, I, but it looks to me like I'm on a 5 a.m. flight for Washington, D.C. Oh, <laughs> so no. uh, that means that it's um, not going to be a lot of sleep that night, especially if it's a celebration. Yeah, so well. uh, we, we'll see how that all works. But uh, what, what I'm, I'm really I'm looking forward to caucus today, the, the energy that just keeps building and building. It's like building up towards the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I'm down here right now in the downtown Marriott in Des Moines, Iowa, in the, you know, the reception of our area. And this place, it was just jammed last night. It will be increasing in its, in its population, jammed more and more uh, you know, through caucus day and caucus night. And it's just the epicenter of politics for the country or even the world at that time. And I, I just enjoy every minute of it. Four years ago, I finished my last interview at about 1.30 in the morning, standing out on the balcony of the state Supreme or the, the state Supreme Court building. It was about 18 below. The wind was blowing. And uh, I'm out there because they can get a shot of the state capitol in the backdrop. And that was my 30-second interview of the day. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like it. And it sounds like it's completely exhausting. So uh, you, you're a better man than I am, Congressman Steve <laughs> King. <laughs> Oh, well, no, we could infect you with this. <laughs> You're out here. We, we'd infect you with the caucus yeah. fever bed. Okay, well, you know, four years from now, uh, I'll, I'm going to take you up on that, and maybe I'm going to see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> well, Congressman Steve King, can do that. thanks so much for coming on to talk to me about the caucuses. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it, and I enjoyed it. There's an Iowa kind Sure, the Iowa caucuses might seem a little old-fashioned or out of touch, in an era of super PACs, big data, and innovations like targeted mobile outreach. There have been proposals to steal Iowa's moment in the sun with a national primary that would be cost prohibitive to all but the best funded candidates, and there have been ideas to rotate the order of the nominating states each election, but then what if you end up with a state that happens to have a particularly disengaged or apathetic electorate? In an age when elections have become about big money and big media buys, maybe it serves a useful purpose if before a candidate gets too big for his britches, he has to sit down with real, everyday people and pay attention to their problems, their concerns, and their hopes for America. No man ever went into politics for lack of ego. 
So perhaps it's a good thing for an ambitious candidate to first have to kiss a few babies, hug a few grandmas, and humble himself before the voters. Certainly, there's something about the Iowa caucuses that brings to mind the music man. But the next time you start to envy Iowa's privileged place in our electoral system, ask yourself if you really want to have to worry about running into some slick politician every time you run to the hardware store, or go to the barber, or your favorite coffee shop. Maybe those of us in the other 49 owe the good folks of the Hawkeye State a small thanks and a pat on the back for taking one for the team. I mean, assuming they don't pick Trump. Well, thanks again to my guest today, Congressman Steve King, Dr. Cody Hofert of the Iowa GOP, and radio host Steve Dace, who is syndicated nationally on the Salem Media Network. And for you caucus goers in Iowa, Good luck braving the snow tonight. Don't let us down. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes. And while you're there, if you have a moment, please leave us a review. I'd also appreciate it if you went to kickasspolitics.com and filled out a brief audience survey on our homepage. And please, if you enjoy the show and you're so inclined, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to all your friends on social media. And if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. It's really important that we fund our production expenses for this coming year so I can put my energies toward great new guests, interesting topics, and producing more new episodes. Whatever you can give is going to help us get there. So go to gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics and make a donation because everyone needs a little good karma at the start of a new year. Follow me on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.